Society Podcast. This is Franz Bowen. This is Trav Weeks. Yes, sir. And with another installment <laughs> of the Driven Society Podcast. We have yes, an ill guest in the building today. He um, is the Associate Professor and Director of Africana Studies at NYU. Uh, Mr. or pardon me, Professor <laughs> Michael Ralph. They get it right. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Thank Absolutely, you. Absolutely, man. Yo, it's so dope to have um, Michael Ralph here, man. We um we did a podcast together with Jazz. Shout out to Jazz for to setting Jazz, this yeah. up too. Um, how long ago was that? Three years it ago. Had to be a few years ago. It seems like recent, but it yeah. had to be a few years ago. And honestly, and I ain't gonna lie, like I was so like honored to be on that podcast. Like yeah, this guy's a professor. NYU and like I mean I went into his office I mean all of these books that I wanted to read a couple of them that I was happy that damn I did read already and like I'm like just talking to him I'm like this guy's a genius like Jazz bigged you up and then just talking to you I'm like man I feel blessed to know this guy so thanks for being on the podcast brother it's my pleasure I learned a lot that day too we had some good conversations some debates some stuff that we'll touch on a little bit here especially with my man Franz here (laughs) Probably being from Eastern Europe, we're going to talk about that Jay-Z and not shit. Let's do it. I just oh, want to jump right off the bat. But yeah, man, thanks thanks for coming. Um, thanks for coming out. You know, I, I don't know you too well, so this is our, our first conversation. So I guess I want to kick it off, um, you know, a, a little bit uh, unorthodoxly. Um, if that's not that's sure, not yeah. a word, is that a word? No, I, prom- I support that. You know, it's okay. Quite a new terms, yeah. yeah let's do it exactly. You know, say shout out to Webster. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, tell me a little bit bef- before we. Um, we're gonna backtrack in. You know who you are, where you're from, really. But I want to kind of jump into this really quick because this kind of stood out to me when I first uh, did my googles on you. Right, so you're the author of a book called Forensics of Capital, right? And it says the main argument of the book is that the social profile of an individual or country is a credit profile as well as a forensic profile. What does that mean? Um, Well, you know, I think it means that like the legal standing of a person or a country can't be separated from like what kinds of access to capital that person or country has or, um, you know, even how that person or country opportunities have available to them. So, for instance, uh, you know, if a person... Um, is suspected of a crime, the first thing that uh, the police would do is sort of uh, look at their social media a lot of times. Like, is there any hint of what they're doing, criminal activity, social media? Or look at their credit card activity, you know? So, like, what have they been spending money on? Where are they making purchases? So someone might think of a credit card as just an op- a medium for buying things or building credit, but actually it's also kind of a surveillance mechanism. Um, so like your, what your social media is, your social profile can't be separated from your forensic profile. Like, are you in trouble with the law? Do you owe money? Um, and also just credit profile, you know, it's all sort of bound up with each other. And I think for nations, it's the same thing. Like if a country is suspected of, um, you know, terrorist activity or if it's deemed a rogue state, it, it hurts its, um, diplomatic standing. Like countries might impose sanctions. Like a good example is, uh, I'm doing research these days in Eritrea and East Africa, Ezra, and um, you know, Eritrea was falsely accused of human rights violations years ago, and so the UN, um, largely pressured by the US, had put all these sanctions on Eritrea. Um, so, uh, and they were also accused of sort of promoting terrorist activity in the Horn of Africa, things like that. So, having had those sanctions put on the country, um, hurt their sort of access to capital, you know. Uh, and trade opportunities. Um, so, And then even to this day, most of what you read about Eritrea, a lot of it is just sort of untrue and um, insinuations without any evidence and things like that. So it's like social profile, diplomatic profile um, is shaped in part by its sort of forensic profile, like did it have sanctions placed on it or not? And that also shaped its credit profile, like what kind of trade partners can it have? What kinds of access to capital can it have? So... A lot of times we think about these things as separate, but they're all intertwined, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So how does that affect somebody that's, like, you know, considered, like, inner city poor, right? Because now you, because you're, what you're saying is financially you can tell somebody's whole, I guess, lifestyle or what have you based on what they spend money on, right? But that could not really be a, a, a good determinant factor, right? Because if somebody is poor, they only have so much capital to deal with 
anyway. So what they're spending money on might not necessarily be like who they are. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, for instance, if if the police pull you over, and you there's nothing you know there's nothing um inherently lawless. There's nothing illegal about using cash. Let's say you want to be off the grid. Let's say um you don't have credit. You don't want credit. There's nothing wrong with just using cash. But if the police pull you over and you have two suitcases full of cash in your trunk, they're gonna be like, "Yo, what are you up to? Like, you know, what kind of person wants to be off the grid? Why, why don't you want to build your credit, etc.?" Um, and the credit profile winds up being a proxy for, "Are you a dependable person? Are you an upstanding citizen?" There's a lot of people things that people read into your credit profile, but there are plenty of people who've had their credit destroyed by um, identity theft. You know, there's there's parents who have ruined their children's credit. So the credit profile might not even be a representation of you or what you've done in the world, but it's taken as like a proxy for you and what you're doing, you know? Um, and then it's also interesting that if you're involved in certain kinds of businesses or industries, you might make a lot of money off the books, right? If you're in the restaurant industry, adult entertainment, um, you know, pharmaceuticals in the streets, you know, there's various industries you could be in where you, you sort of off off the books, Um and and obviously there are certain assumptions about you know whether you're involved in illicit or illegal activity just on that basis, um, and you know whether you're like a tax paying citizen or not, all kinds of judgments made about that. So I think um, yeah I think even this question of credit, credit worthiness, credit profiles is, it is a part of a kind of social hierarchy, in addition to being part of a surveillance structure, um, you know if you think about what a credit profile was in its inception like the idea of um, can you trust someone to loan money to that person? I mean, the earliest version of a credit profile would be like, let's say, uh, 18th century England. Someone is from a super wealthy family that's lived in a, a large estate for a long time. And you just know by the family name that they have the money, they're good for it. So they have access to all kinds of capital, right? And so like that's like the, the pinnacle of a credit profile, right? Is like your family name is associated with wealth, intergenerational wealth. Just by your, your very literal profile, you have all this access. And then the contrast would be like, you know, someone who's enslaved, someone who's dirt poor, no one knows who they are, no one knows where they're from, no one knows if they make money, if they, you know, how they will get money. So a credit profile is just sort of in many ways a proxy for a kind of history of access to capital and wealth and things like that. That's, man, because these days I look at credit, like I'm transparently i'm in the process of becoming like debt free right and i'm super close thank god (laughs) right and um you know uh it it just strikes me as interesting that you know on on the positive side it looks like yeah you're trustworthy with with debt that means somebody can let you um hold capital and you can pay it back but debt is really like enslavement you know what i mean like you're 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 literally you're, you're basically saying that, like, when somebody tells me these days, like, my 33-year-old brain, like, yo, I got an 850 credit. I'm like, oh, you must owe a lot of bread. Or, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you must be out there, out there. You know what I mean? As opposed to somebody who maybe doesn't have as active a, a credit profile. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is funny how, um, I mean, learning how to improve your credit score and is a very specific um, set of protocols, you know, it's assumed that, again, like if you're trustworthy, if you're smart with money, you have a good credit score, but obviously that's not how credit works. Credit is really sort of like, um, has to do with time and accountability and there's a very kind of structure. So like in some parts of the world, like if you travel to other countries where even the way the neighborhoods are laid out is kind of um, not necessarily on a grid, People don't necessarily have post office boxes. People don't even necessarily have addresses. Like people can just explain to you where they live. They'll be like, "Go down this big, you know, oak tree, make a left." I live right by the church. Now, that's how a lot of people so live in. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All kinds of countries are like that. But like, how would you? How would you improve your credit score if you can't even receive bills to your address? You know, if if someone can't find you. You know, there's a, there's an interesting thing about credit that's tied to a certain particular structure of accountability. Um, and how you manage and pay bills over time and all kinds of things that, you know, it's easy to take for granted. Um, but yeah, I mean, you make an interesting point about like, what, what would it mean to have good credit? I mean, obviously also if you're super wealthy, um, and if you have all kinds of resources at your disposal, uh, it may not even be, you might even give a second thought to having bills. You can always pay your bills well in advance. You can just do, um, you know, 
pay it on auto pay each month and have all your bills paid and it looks like oh you're so responsible but if you have all kinds of unlimited resources it's not even a question um like there are things that can hurt your credit score um like just moving a lot you know sometimes it can look like bad to a crediting agency but what if you don't have that much money and you're trying to find a cheaper rent and so you're trying to kind of yeah. from year to year trying to find a better living situation you know um so I think, you know, I think that it's it's a much more complicated thing. There's a lot of bias built into it. Uh, and that's just something that people have to navigate, though, because I think that the thing about credit that makes it so coercive is there's really no escape from it, right? Like, if you don't have credit, it just hurts you. It just bars you from certain opportunities. I mean, or if you do make certain kinds of transactions, there's all these penalties, there's all these um, deposits you have to pay, like if you rent a car, if you're staying in a hotel. If you don't have credit... You know, like it went from you can't even do it, or you just pay all these deposits. You know, if you think about it, it's kind of smart and interesting that someone might just have a debit card. They might say, "I'm living within my means." You know, I don't want to take on added debt. I don't want to pay interest on on that. But credit is about taking on the debt and paying the interest and managing it in a very specific way in order to sort of participate in this. So I'm, I'm sorry, bro. I don't mean to like go in, but like I think because here's the thing, right? For me, I think. The, the idea of credit as we understand it now in, in first world, like it should only really apply to the rich because if you have, for example, like when Michael Jackson was alive, people used to swear up and down he was broke, but all of his debt was against one asset, which was the Beatles catalog, right? So it was like, at that time it was worth like 250 million or something like that. So if he defaulted on anything, worst case scenario... They just take one of your assets. I uh-huh. think like if you, I think if you don't have any assets, you shouldn't be on a. There should be a different uh, regime. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, like, that's interesting. Well, you know, you sort of reminded me. I, I think a lot about how subjective value can be. You know, monetary value, and I think it's interesting. For instance, that like an artist like Basquiat, you know, had this sort of record-breaking sale of a painting of his, like hundred something million dollars recently. You know, long after he passed away, unfortunately. Um, but then it's so much of who Basquiat was contributes to his fame and his legend now, right? So it's like all these things about who he was contribute to that value, and yet that value just accrued over time after he passed away. So there's something interesting about that, um, about how like capital and and debt and value. I mean, the other thing that you, you made me think about, though, when you're talking about credit and debt, um, I was thinking about, I knew this guy who, you know, he graduated from college, had straight A's, went to work on Wall Street. And then, like, in the midst of the financial crisis, he, he lost his job. And then he's, like, practically suicidal and stuff like that. And then finally, you know, he bounced back a couple years later and I saw him. And I said, so what are you doing now? And he said, oh, me and this other dude that lost his job in Wall Street, we created a company where we just get companies to sell their debt to us. And then we make a profit on it. By selling it to us. Yeah. And then we, then we, we, we. We take their debt, we make money, and then we cut them part of that, you know? And so I think a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that their debt is an asset to someone else. That's a fact. So for like instance, mortgage debt, the way that people yeah. would sell, sell oh, yeah. them a second. Shout out to a portfolio recovery. <laughs> right. That they're trying to get. Yeah. <laughs> like if you think about, um, like, my, the like classic example, down. you know, would be like, let's say you, um, you owe money to, you know, when I was a kid, I used to see these bills come to the house and be like, Blockbuster Video or something, right? Like, you owe, you know, $8 to Blockbuster Video. And then after a couple of months, if you don't pay it, it's no longer Blockbuster Video. It's like, um, it's like now you owe like $11 to some other credit agency that acquired Blockbuster's debt. And they're like, oh, Blockbuster has $200 million worth of debt that's owed to them. We can make $300 million off this debt, you know? So people are transacting in other people's debt and making money off of it, you know? So I think... Right, that's really where it gets insidious, you know, because it's like, how could it be that someone else's debt, which is someone else's suffering, their struggle, is that profitable for someone else? You know, I think yeah. that's the, the game. The game is crazy. Yeah, crazy. this is why Jesus was flipping tables. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Was wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to uh, just take a little back into like you know, just tell people before we even get into what we're looking at right now, which is amazing. Um, how does one become Michael Ralph? How does, you know what I mean? Like how, um, this, where you're from and um, where did the passion or the uh, drive to get into the educational space really spark from? 
Yeah, thank well, thank you. You know, I think um, well, my family's from Guyana. You know, uh, and my parents went to college in Jamaica. So my older brother was born, and then my dad went to grad school in Canada. That's where I was born, and then we were only out there for a year, and then we came to the U.S. New York. So my younger brother was born, um, and my mom was a librarian. My dad was like university administrator. So I guess through most of my life, you know, I was always around universities, always around libraries. Um, that kind of thing. So, and my parents were like teachers back in Guyana, even when they were young. You know, in my family, I, I have family members, like a good family friend who's the same age as my uncles, who like was their teacher because he went to college like a year before them, and while he was a college student, he also taught high school. So he taught like most of my aunts and uncles, like math and physics and all this stuff. You know, so I come from a, a long line of educators. So there's that part of it. Um, but also, you know, I just think growing up black in the U.S. Because, you know, I, I was born in Canada, but only lived there for a year. So I grew, in Canada, you know, yeah, 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 in Vancouver, Canada. But I was, uh, but I grew up in the U.S., you know, uh, and I grew up as a black man in the U.S. And, and you know, that shapes you. I mean, when you face um, these kind of structural barriers, uh, you have a couple of different responses available to you. And I guess my response was to try to kind of um, interrogate, critique, and expose the injustices and just kind of promote solidarity to the extent that I can. I remember, um, you know, I graduated from Morris Brown College in Atlanta, which is a historically black college, but I, but I started at Morehouse, and um, when I started at Morehouse, uh, we used to go to this uh, weekly meeting where we heard speeches from, you know, guest lecturers and things like that, and they would say things like... Um, you know, three out of ten black men are in prison. You know, two out of ten black men are having babies out of wedlock. You know, you know, one out of ten black men are on welfare. All these dismal statistics, and it felt like it was designed to make us feel proud and special, and, and unique. But I always felt like, man, if that many black men are struggling, then I just have that much more work to do. I feel like if that many black men are locked up, who's taking care of their kids? Who's putting money on their books? What's happening to their families? You know, so for me, it was like, oh, I got to work as hard as ten other black men if so many black men are sort of struggling or, or we face so much adversity. So I think that's where my motivation comes from. It's like, oh, if, if we're facing so much, so many obstacles as a people, you know, um, then like what can I do to contribute or, or like what's my role in helping transform things, you know? Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. I was thinking, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, especially your mom. From a West Indian background, I think um, having that self of sense of purpose and sense of value, I think, has always been ingratiated in me. Um, I hope that's the right word. Um, you would know, Professor. <laughs> um, um, and I think because, you know, especially living in Barbados and our prime minister, our president being black um, on offer at the time. And, you know, so obviously Barack Obama coming back to the States to live was an amazing deal, but it's not something I haven't, I've seen a black man in power and, and whatnot before. And I guess the way my mom raised me, I never looked at myself as being like less valuable or I never, cause you know, in this line of work, I have to walk in different rooms and different spaces. And I've been always been able to like stay myself and, and walk with a certain level of, um, of purpose. But I don't know why, I don't know what, if it's like why now I'm just like, I have this new lens and I'm really seeing how much, you know, things are weighing against us. And I guess, I guess I don't know if it's my sense of community now, because I've always had a strong sense of community. Um, and I've un always, you know, understood our struggle and whatnot and um, being from, you know, Brooklyn and whatnot, but also having a Jersey experience and I've seen both sides. So, um, but now more than ever, I'm seeing, you know, especially with the incarceration rate and hearing about it more. And, and like, you know, as I've spoken at schools, I'm seeing everything that's weighed down against us. And I see why these spaces are needed for us to be able to just come together and thrive and why we have to, like, you know, just build more. And um, I, I want to ask both of y'all that question. Like, for you to be inspired to get into this space, do you, do you feel that weight? Because you're, you know, you're a professor at NYU, you know what I mean? You've done a, a, a great thing. So have you felt that weight of being a black man and walking in certain rooms? And how did that make you feel? And how did that um, make you uh, react in this world? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about the academy, you know, is, is that 
everything that's happening outside the academy is also happening inside the academy. You know, I think that that was sort of somehow it's like a revelation. It was a revelation, you know, when you discover that because you think, you know, oh, having a doctorate, you think having, you know, these degrees and, you know, it would change something and, and it changed certain things. I mean, you know, when I was in graduate school, I, went, I did my doctorate in anthropology at University of Chicago. It got to a point where, like, I would not even carry my license when I'm driving around, but I would carry my school ID, you know, because I got pulled over by the police and I showed my school ID. Yeah, it's better. It's all good. Like, if I show my school ID, they're like, oh, okay, go. They don't even care, you know. But if I was, like, a regular black dude driving around Chicago, it's, like, a problem, you know what I mean? But if I'm a University of Chicago graduate student, doctoral student, I'm good. So, you know, but I, I've been stopped and harassed just even going to my own office. Like, one time, security guard was like, you know, oh, students can't come in the building at this hour. And I was like... I'm not a student, I'm faculty. And he pulls up this little directory of students. He looks in there, he's like, you're not in here. I'm like, because that's for students, I'm faculty. And, and the thing that's funny is I go to my office all the time. Even there's no security there, I have swipe access. I don't even need him to be there. So he's trying to stop me. So then finally we're going back and forth. And he's like, well, what are you doing at your office at this hour anyway? And I'm like, it's wow. a strange idea, right? It's a strange idea that an elderly white man should be trying to interrogate me about going to my own office, right? But it's like, you're not free from surveillance and harassment and policing even with a doctor even even in being employed as a professor at a university at your own institution you know so or just the kind of like you know false insinuations and snap judgments and 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 lies and anything that could happen to incriminate you outside the academy happens in the academy you know i i started this lecture with my students one time but sometimes by like um pulling up a lot of famous influential people that they know and like african-american leaders and I show them, like, how many of them have been, like, accused of crimes or arrested, you know, from, like, Rosa Parks, MLK, Malcolm X, Jay-Z, Diddy. There's so many people you can name that, like, you know, Jay-Z's a billionaire. Diddy's on his way to being a billionaire, but they've been arrested, you know. And a lot of their problems started after they were famous, you know. And that's interesting, right? Like, it gets to the point where you almost wonder, like, can you be a successful, influential black person and not face, like, accusations or arrests or anything like that you know what i mean because other groups most successful people don't have to deal with that in the same way oftentimes you know for sure because i think i think from the jump i've just been always conscious that i just know being a black man you just have to move a certain way you know i just can't do what everybody else is doing because if i do it it could mean something else like yo i I had an instance not too long ago i was driving um Right, and I parked up the car. It was a French car, right? And I go in the car, go back in the car, and like the key won't work. So I'm like, I'm like, why is the key won't work? And I'm pressing all. The, I'm like, it says the keys out of uh, um, um, sp- um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the key is out of radar. The key is out of ne- range, right? So I'm like, what the hell? Like, I'm pressing all the buttons to like, hopefully it sparks, like, it get connection. So I like, let me hit the trunk. I hit the trunk, and the car in front of me trunks open. I'm like, oh shit, I'm in the wrong car. <laughs> but my mind automatically went like, yo, I can get killed for this. Like, this is like an, an honest mistake, but the wrong scenario, hands up, get on the floor. Yeah. Well, it's funny how much time black people have to spend being worried about accused of things they're not even doing. You know, like a lot of black parenting goes into. Um, trying to prevent you from having someone arrest you or kill you even when you're just minding your business they'll be like if you go in the store don't take a bag from a different store if you do tie the bag don't put your hands in your pockets don't pick something up if you're not gonna buy it don't do this don't do that don't you know it's like all this stuff and then you still get falsely accused you still get harassed you still get followed around the store um the other day i was going to a restaurant with my my son and um we got there and he wanted to throw something away he had in his hand and, and the trash can was like right by the little the um hostess stand and he's about to go throw it i was like no no don't don't and he's like what, what? I'm, throw I'm like just wait just wait till the hostess come back because i don't want you behind the hostess stand and like what are you doing back there you know yeah. but it's, you know he didn't understand he's like there's a trash can back there i need a trash can i'm just gonna go throw this away you know but it's like all these things were like no we don't want anybody to see you and think this and do that you know yo is there a is there a um is there a scholastic term for that? Like that 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 mental duress, I suppose, of, of always thinking of... Because we, like Travis said, we operate with this extra thought level. Yeah, and so you, natural. Yeah, which, which is crazy because 
you know you know how you feel when you got like one thing on your mind that you got to get done and you can't really think about anything else and, until you get past that mm-hmm. but this is a ever present thing in the minds of black people in general yeah is there a but there me? is there are there is research on this and you know we know a friend norelle giancana she did a um phd in sociology at university of chicago now she's in cali she lives in la she works for netflix um she would know because she's mentioned this to me before i think one of her professors when she was in school was studying like stress as its impact on african americans and just on black people the this kind of added burden and stress of uh being harassed and surveilled in this way I think you know um, it's kind of interesting I feel like I, I haven't focused on that research partly because probably the, the West Indian in me doesn't even want to acknowledge or think about it that much you know because it's like I guess as you said you know we just had to move in a different way or whatever and I think the thing about it is like you know in a sense I've only lived one year of my life outside this country I mean growing up besides the research I lived overseas you know for research purposes I lived in Senegal spend a lot of time in Eritrea and Eritrea these days but I think I think that um you know I've been here so I, I feel like I've had the experience of being a black man in America and stuff and I think what's interesting about African Americans it's like part of the reason why I think it's um so challenging to grapple with structural racism and barriers is like when this is your country and you built this country it feels different. It's different to be treated like that, you know? Like, when you're an immigrant, you come and you're like, hey, I'm about to do whatever. It's cool. Like, you know, I'll slave and sacrifice. I'll do this in a different type of way. But when this is your country, it's even more insulting. It's even more offensive, you know, that you build this country and you're being treated like that, you know? So so I do understand some of the distinctions um, in approach or, or some this kind of sense of what's different in terms of how people react to it. But um, I also think that, you know, People, black people with different kinds of backgrounds have a lot to learn from each other uh, about how to navigate these predicaments. And I think that I am very critical. I don't like to sort of like um, think that one group has a more appropriate approach, a more suitable approach or something like that. You know what I mean? Because I feel like part of what racism does, what racism does is sort of pit different kinds of black people against each other, you know? Like like it makes like, especially... um. West Indians and African immigrants feel superior somehow or like you yeah. know so, so to your point right I remember having a conversation with my cousin a couple of Thanksgivings ago and he was saying that you know I, I'm with, um, I couldn't consider myself West Indian American my mom and father are from St. Vincent and Grenada respective, respectively um, but he was saying that it's interesting so you have slavery from the 15 to like 1800s right then Jim Crow and I'm speaking about like America right then Jim Crow then after Jim Crow you have uh you know the civil rights movement and stuff like that but st- have like redlining, redlining all those other stuff in between right. then you have the crack epidemic right, yeah. right? Yeah. but in the West Indies it's kind of really slavery and then it's more of like a class thing. Like I'm, I, I do imagine it's colorism, but in in the West Indies, but it's more of like a class structure, right? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely different so they're, they're, Yeah, and they people in the West Indies never really had that many. Um, there were different struggles for sure, but there was no crack epidemic in the eighties. There, you know what I'm saying? Like. There was no heroin. There was the oil crisis probably hit differently in a place where you can pick up a mango or you know eat provision, or if you uh, as opposed to living in you know metropolitan cities where you know there isn't food abundancy like that. Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? So, yeah, yeah. I so to your point, you know when when our parents come up here, they they can't even have a frame of reference. They don't understand. The, the weariness of the African-American. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I, I definitely think that um, having access to land, having both access and expertise and sort of growing your own food, and even, you know, related to that, like your own healing uh, approaches, like naturopathy kind of approaches or herbal medicines and things, like people think of it as religion. Um, you know, I think it, it does a lot for you. Like, I guess in like Jamaica, they call it OVA or something like that, you know. 
there's a lot of practices like that. I think that people rely on and make them stronger. And I think in parts of the, the U.S., you still see people um, with access to that expertise and that that land. You know, the parts of the South is like but that. Yeah, but it's and it makes a big like difference. Coastal. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Or southern. If you're like yeah. in Savannah, Georgia, right, right. Or, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, wherever in South Carolina, like uh, they yeah, call yeah. them Geechee people. Yeah, but, yeah, you know, yeah. It's interesting. They have the kind of same culture as the Caribbean. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. For sure, for sure. Yeah, definitely. You know, so I think. Yeah, basically, to your point, you know, wherever people have been, like, sort of divorced from the land and denied access to expertise and and to passing wisdom across generations, you see them struggling more, you know? So so I think there's definitely something important about reconnecting. And I think there's some interesting movements in the South, like in Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi, there's been a lot of sort of movement toward um, collective ownership of land and farming and, you know, in various cities, I guess, in New Orleans and Detroit, I return to like urban gardening and farming and I think a lot of this is about like autonomy and about sharing resources and expertise and like combating food deserts and improving health and things like that so I think all throughout you know African Americans have been concerned with these things I think in recent years people have developed new strategies for sort of trying to you know uh, recover some of these practices you said just now to quote in recent years, right? I feel like in the last maybe 10 years, but definitely in the last five, there's been this cultural awakening in black people. Like, it's not like, it's not like in the late eighties and nineties where people was wearing like shells and, you know what I'm saying? Kente cloth and stuff like that. Like I I remember when I was a kid, like that was big, but I really feel like now there's kind of like this black identity that's forming. It's kind of like, I always used to say that, you know, Black people in America are like the teenagers of the world, right? I feel like now moving from that phase into more of like a um, post-adolescent phase, more of like an early adulthood where you're kind of like recognizing the self, right? But it's like a collective self. Do, have Have you had that same uh, um, observation or what would your... Um... Yeah, I think, well, I think, I don't think, I don't quite see it the same way. Just in terms of that question of maturity, I think that black people in this country or black people in the world are as advanced as any people but I do think there's something very interesting about um, what you're saying about political awakening and awareness for sure you know I think that um, okay if you think about even prominent African American athletes entertainers like in you know you remember like when Michael Jordan would famously be asked about supporting black causes or doing something for black people he'd say things like well he doesn't just want his wealth his plan to be to benefit black people he would say like you know republicans buy sneakers too these kinds of things you know mm-hmm. where he was that's a very 1990s answer right right, right. <laughs> shying away from a prominent role as um kind of promoting social justice something like that if you look at that by contrast like kaepernick or even like lebron is a better example because like you know lebron being at the top of his game and still you know wearing the i can't breathe t-shirt and still you know, building a school, so just kind of fostering um, mobility, social mobility for for African Americans. I think there is a kind of renewed awareness or something really striking about their sense that they have to sort of help create and sustain core social institutions like schools and things like that, you know, not just give to charities or something and not just talk like uh, the, the message of sort of supporting mobility, but actually just kind of like actually trying to institutionalize it in a certain way because I think that people realize how high the stakes are you know um, I mean it's not like but having the stakes always been high exactly what's different say, about this temperature <laughs> what's different um, maybe it's about how certain images or events can be shared so quickly and go viral quote unquote something like that maybe mm-hmm. something about that because you know Obviously, as you're saying, you know, police killing of unarmed black people is not new. You know, mm-hmm. if anything, like it's one of America's oldest traditions. You know, and mm-hmm. um, and when you look at it, like if you go back and read Ida B. Wells, it's it, you know, it's like a, she wrote a book called Mob Rule in New Orleans. It's literally talking about how um, so much of policing is really just attacking unarmed black people. Um, she talks about sort of mob rule as a as part of law enforcement, like. A black person be falsely accused of a crime, they get taken to jail, and before they can even have justice, a mob will come and take them and lynch them. You know, and it's like the police allowed and enabled that. So it's like mob rule was doing the work of the police, or the police are doing the work of the mob, depending on how you see it. But it's like that's been happening since you know we 
it, it I means been happening throughout the time we've been in this country, but also especially um, in the, she's really interested in how post emancipation lynching was this response to to black people entering the labor force, but also just the panic of black people getting power in this country, having any kind of power in this country. So mm-hmm. I just think that, um, or even economic um, mobility, like there, she talks about how some black friends of hers had opened a grocery store and then they were false accused of things. People attacked their store, people lynched them just for having like a black grocery store, just for being autonomous, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, um, which is crazy. It's like, y'all hate us so much. Like, we don't want to be in your store, no way. Like, <laughs> right, you know right, saying? right. Like, like we can't be in your store, we can't have our own store. You know, so I just, but I think that's interesting, right? That like the same kinds of issues, you know, you see it over and over again. So, um, you know, I guess if anything, maybe though, we have the benefit of hindsight to know that we will face these issues and we have to be savvy. Like when you hear stories about like Black Wall Street, like hey, black people about to this economic wealth and then it was destroyed through domestic terrorism, at least you start to think to yourself like, okay, if we build up this wealth, we have to be able to defend this also. Protect it, protect it you know? Like you can't be so naive as to think that people will allow you to accumulate wealth and influence and not try to challenge that. You know what I'm saying? At the very least, you're aware now from these lessons of history. Yeah, yeah. Because you could be naive. You know, I think, like, if you think you can be successful like other kinds of people, you might not realize how uh, how much your success would provoke other people, you know? And I think this goes back to some things we are talking about. You guys are asking me about the academy. But I think black people in any industry, as they cross through different thresholds, they encounter new obstacles, you know? And it's like, when you sit down with black people mm-hmm. in different industries, it could be fashion, academia, finance, mm-hmm. film, and you'll be like, wait a second, what that happened to you? It could be like, oh, you know, you're, you're grinding, you get this big thing, you're like, okay, cool, great. All of a sudden, what? <laughs> like, this awful thing, you know? Or just kind of opposition, you're like, I, you have no idea that there's going to be more opposition on the other side of that triumph, you know? Yeah. But I think once you realize that some people are threatened by your success then you're like oh, okay I should anticipate there will be more opposition on the other side of this triumph and not assume that things will go smoothly whatever but certainly not just because you made it through a certain set of hur- hurdles or obstacles that things will go smoothly from then on which is like I think often how we think about it you think like you're, you're grinding and then you make it and you'll be good you know but really you know you just realize um you're grinding, you make it, and you face new obstacles, and you'll triumph, and then you'll face new obstacles. You know, you have to yeah. brace for that, I think. You know? It's yeah. interesting, man. Um, I, I don't know. I think Trav might have said this one time, or I don't remember who I was speaking to exactly. He was saying, you know, Chinese people don't really have to deal with certain um, harassments because, you know, in uh, in the global sphere, like they're a pseudo-superpower, if you will, right? And the it had to be you yeah. right yeah so he's like yo we should appeal to like the world court or like to the un right he's like how is it that there is no ghana or nigeria or wherever stepping up in the un like yo look how you treating our people yeah. you know what i'm saying like we we should be able to bring a case against the united states or some place for you know um for for human rights violation at the yeah. very least you yeah. know yeah yeah it's a great point i think that and there have been attempts you know to try to sort of um to try to frame in the un you know the abuse of African Americans as a kind of human rights yeah. violation because they'll never do it to Chinese people because they know China. Well, you know, Marcus Gar- real quick. Right, Marcus Garvey said that too. He said that one of the reasons why African Americans are so yeah. vulnerable in the U.S. is because there's no nation state to defend them. You know, and that is interesting. It's also interesting that um Malcolm X when he visited the African continent, I think the second time he visited, he met with several heads of state. You know, and you know a lot of African Americans, you know, tour Africa, but to meet down, sit meet down, sit down and meet with heads of state is interesting, right? Because it seemed like Malcolm really was interested in a geopolitical strategy, you know. And what would that mean? Like, if there are several African countries that Malcolm or someone has helped kind of create partnerships with, that's interesting and empowering. And you know, I also think about you know Nip- Nipsey Hussle who passed last year, unfortunately, and uh. He also, you know, when he visited Eritrea, uh, where his dad is from, he had met with the president of Eritrea and yeah. stuff like that. And I just think it's interesting wow. 
when activists um, have relationships with heads of state, particularly in Africa, right? Because it's like, okay, maybe there's something being, you know, you can set up something, you know? And so then for them to be killed, right? They let you, um, like, Gaddafi was close. Oh well, yeah, he probably he probably was the closest one out of out of everybody, at least financially. Well, it's very interesting that the Gaddafi thing is interesting because um, people talk a lot about his plans for you know infrastructure and to have his own currency and all these yeah. things, you know. Um, so you know, I just think that uh, yeah, it's a very it's a very um, important question where do black people stand geopolitically, and um, you know, I think there are many African Americans who don't feel a connection to the continent and Africa who. Who feel like you know, as one student said to me a few days ago, like this is the only country I've ever known. I don't have any other options. But there are others who don't feel that way. Feel like, oh yeah, we have all content available to us. And and I try to point out that a lot of the diasporic Pan African movements were shaped by people in the diaspora, right? It's like precisely because you're not in the continent of Africa or not from there or don't know exactly where you're from, you know, that you can appreciate the continent as a whole as a resource and sure. and strategically and help sort of ignite and foster sort of Well um, look, look what's happening now, you know? even with the Afrocello experience and the year of the return yeah, last yeah, year yeah. or whatnot. Like yeah, yeah. so that's dope. That's um so it actually leads me to my next question, something in my hand that's very beautiful, <laughs> very aesthetically pleasing, but has some real substantive matter in the inside. Um, if you can tell the people what's in my hand right now, brother. Yeah, so you're looking at this book uh, I just finished called Fishing and Fishing. Fishing, guys. Uh, for those who don't know, it's a, a practice like when people are incarcerated, uh, sometimes they'll like tear up bed sheets or use dental floss or use some kind of string um, to connect to objects that they want to share with each other, you know whether they want to write and they don't have a pen or a notepad or they want to make something or cook something and they're sharing resources to each other. So they call that fishing. And, um, you know, a few years ago I had, you know, I've taught in the prison education program uh, at NYU. I taught a course at Wallkill Correctional Facility. I'll come back to that. And I also lectured at Sean Gunk, which is maximum security um, prison. And, and, you know, when I talked to people who were formerly incarcerated, they talked, they talked about fishing and when I heard it described, it was so impressive to me and so extravagant. I was like, oh, I got to do like an animated film about fishing because it felt like only animation could really capture the ingenuity and the elegance yeah, and the sure. extravagance and the mm-hmm. genius of it, you know? Because, you know, they were telling me stories about someone on like a higher tier of a prison who could like send something to a very specific cell on a lower tier or just all kinds of really creative, innovative things, you know? So it made me want to do a short animated film about it. But then I thought, oh, actually... Um, I want to do like a book version also just to make sure it can circulate in a certain kind of way. So I just did the book version and now I have a Kickstarter where I'm raising money to do the animated film part. Um, So, you know, but when, um, you know, in the film, the way I conceptualized it was like, it's going to be animation, but there's no dialogue. Instead, like music uh, does a lot of the storytelling work. So it's really... Um, different sounds or different songs play at different moments that help foster the narration. So the book also doesn't have any text. It's just like images, you know, so basically it's a picture book. And, you know, it's funny because I was talking to a literary agent about it and she said, you know, well, uh, this picture book, the material, it's too mature for a children's book, so not a children's book, but yet if it's for ch- teenagers or adults, it has to have text. So really, I guess it's like a picture book for older audiences, you could say, you know, in the sense that like... Uh, I mean, children can read it as well and appreciate it, I'm sure. Uh, but then also, I think adults and even teenagers can can appreciate it. And I hope that there's like, as as a storytelling um, enterprise, that it works well for them. You know that people can appreciate what's at stake and even use it as a way to try to foster their own critical insights about what incarceration might be like. You know. Um, but then I'm also excited about the doing the animated film and sort of taking it to a different level. Yeah, I I noticed right off the bat the color palette is blue. It's just different shades of blue, yellow, um, a little bit of white, and maybe like a a splash of red here or there. So, you know, with with color theory, blue represents a a certain, you know, tonality, a certain feel. Was that intentional or is it kind of... Yeah, I had, uh, you know, I I spent a lot of time working with different artists, I want to shout out Jason Piperberg first because that's the first artist I really connected with around some of the visual projects I have. And, and Jason Piperberg did, he did the comic, like the illustration for the comic Raising Dion, 
which then oh, got dope. picked up. Mm. Yeah, then it got picked up in my, as a Netflix show. show. Yeah, by that Michael Jordan produced it. Michael B. Jordan yep, produced yep, it. Now yep. starting. Uh, so Jason, you know, he did like the initial sort of conceptualizations and things like that, and then I found this other artist, Laura Molnar, um, who did like the inks and coloring and stuff like that. But you know, it's been great to find very talented artists who appreciate the vision, and I'm always interested in like artists who can help me render these ideas and just you know, I I really enjoy doing collaborative projects uh, because you know it's different as an academic. A lot of your work is like scholarly articles, scholarly books, and you're just sort of, um, you know, you're, it's your research, your ideas. It's collaborative in a sense. You, you have mentors, you have colleagues, but you're sort of producing stuff at your own pace, right? And at the pace of publication. But when you work collaboratively, it's like you do a part, you give it to someone else, they do a part, they give it to someone else, you know? So I really do enjoy that, that process. You Were know? you worried about any um, romanticization of that experience at all? Yeah, definitely. I think... Um, even when people hear me talk about it, if they look at it, they may say, oh, this looks interesting and cool. You know, prison is awful and horrific. And I, and I think that's, you know, true of, like, incarceration of slavery. The people don't agree on how to characterize it. But the thing I'll say about it, I'll say some things about that. Because I feel like when you look at mass incarceration, all the, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands and millions of black people who've been incarcerated in this country... Um, you realize a prison is a lot of things. A prison is a form of punishment. It's also a sports team. It's also an apprenticeship, an internship. It's also um, like it could be like a men's club. It could be a lot of different things. I mean, if you spent most of your life in prison, and if over the course of generations a lot of black people went to prison, then a prison is not just a cage. It's a lot of things. You know, like when I taught at Walkill, it's minimum security. So that means that. Usually people there are on their way back into society. And um, I've been told that they don't even have cells. They have, like, tiny dorm rooms, basically, almost. And when you go in the prison, it's interesting because they have a lot of mobility in the prison because it's minimum security, so they can walk around. So you're walking around with inmates uh, or people who are incarcerated, right? And um, the thing that struck me about going into prisons was not how horrific and violent and, and coarse they are. It's how, when you meet people who are incarcerated, it felt so normal. Like, it was no different than being in my own neighborhoods, talking to my own friends, talking to my own cousins. That's how it felt like, talking to people in Christchurch. So I'm like, whoa, prison is so normal, actually, in a way. That's the scary part. Like, some of my students in, who are incarcerated are smarter than my students at NYU. They're better writers. They're more insightful. So why are they in prison? You know what I'm saying? It's like one of those things where you're like, wait, it's that's the most jarring part, that, like, some people have been locked away for decades, and they have all this talent and all these insights. So I think... For me, I I don't think of it as romanticizing. I think of it as demonstrating that a prison might not be what you think it is. Like when I was in Walkill, there's a moment when I'm teaching and I'm like, man, this doesn't feel like a prison. It feels like a, a black boarding school or something like that because my students wow. are so strong. And, you know, they have uniforms and they're strong and, like, the building is this gothic architecture and stuff. I'm like, it could be like a boarding school if it wasn't for the fact that they can't leave when I leave, you know? It wasn't for the fact that they can't go back to their families for years, you know? So it's like, I think some people think of it as just going to look like a dungeon and they're going to be, like, chained to a radiator and it's going to be, like, just awful. But, like, you know, they're in there. They're they're writing beautifully insightful and elegant papers. They're, like, cracking jokes. They're... They're making plans. They're connected to people on the outside. You know, there's a there's a lot happening there. So I think that it's not. I don't want to make it seem rosy, but I also think it's important to to realize that it's not like their lives are over. It's not like um, they're just trapped in a dungeon like animals, and that they don't have aspirations and insights, and that they're not sort of an important part of our social world. You know, so I think that. It's really just designed to show the maybe the complexity of it. Yeah, that's know? what I'm. The first thing I'm getting is like how. I don't want to give it away, but like you know, it's uh, you get to see that the creativity of the people inside, and like you know, um, that there's they're artists, you know what yeah. I mean? They're artists, there. and when it comes down to uh, uh, how even a confined space, how they can still find their ways to get, how creative they can be, and like if in another, you know, another environment that was able to foster these type of talent and skill sets how they can thrive, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. I find that to be very, very interesting. Like, this tells a great story without words. And it, it's not, I can see, like, you kind of leave it up also to, like, the, pe the one's imagination because it can, 
the version of this can be different from you for you from how I'm reading this, how I'm reading into this. And I find that to be super dope. What what exactly led you to this story? What led you to incarceration? And I know you taught there and you got to, but what, was there something in particular that made you wanted to put a, a shine of light on this? Yeah, I think that the more I talked to people who have been incarcerated and um, the more time I spent there, the more I realized that uh, people were having a lot of different kinds of experiences that um, people who were outside didn't know about. Um, and then I also thought that people had a lot of expertise that people in the outside world didn't know about. So I think one thing that's interesting about prison education is that the premise of it is that somehow you're bringing knowledge to people incarcerated because they need it and they don't have it. But people aren't thinking about their skills and their talents and their insights. So for instance, um, and a guy was locked up and told me that there's a dude, one guy told me there's a guy who would take like toilet paper and make flowers and then like use a marker to color the flowers. But like the way he colored these flowers, if it was sitting on a table, you would think it's like a real flower. Like that's how well he could color those flowers. Or like I heard about another guy who like would take like Jolly Ranchers and put them in a surgical glove and boil them in water and then they would melt and then he would like make flowers out of these Jolly Ranchers and it would be like, it would look like a blown glass sculpture or something like that with these Jolly Ranchers. Or another guy like would take um, potato chip bag and crush up the potato chips and add some water to the potato chip dust make it like a dough like he would roll it out and then make pizza with it or something like that so it's just like so much creativity as you said like in this confined circumstance so much creativity so much artistry so much insight um so i think that's the thing that stuck with me which is like you know human ingenuity really has no bounds and even in confined spaces you know people will use their creativity to connect with each other, you know, to communicate, to create things, to make beautiful things, to um, to share resources, you know. There are a lot of things that happen uh, that human beings will do because we're social beings, you know. So we want to communicate. Uh, we're going to share. We're going to strategize. Um, we like to contribute to our environments, you know. So I think that all those things that human beings tend to do, they'll do even in this kind of space, you know. And I think that's really where the injustice lies. You know, um, when I was in teaching, a, a giving a lecture in a maximum security prison, I would talk to people who've been there for decades, you know, decades. And I'm thinking, like, I don't know what they did to wind up here, but, like, decades later, I'm sure they're not the same people they were when they got here, you know. And, I mean, you know, if you've been in prison for decades and you'll be there for decades, a lot of times all they do is, like, um, read and study, right? Because it's like they they have a lot of time in their hands, you know? And so, like, what what does it mean to think that, like, you essentially are spending most of your life devoted to your scholarship, but somehow on the outside, all people see you as this kind of awful person who did this thing, like, 25 years before, 30 years before, you know? So I just think that that's, you know, um, troubling, you know? It's troubling that, like, that that we've become so comfortable with that. Yeah, it's almost like you're giving them a voice in a sense where it's like, you, you humanize these um, people in prison, like, and it, um, it's so interesting, right? It's so crazy about this podcast, the timing of this, too. So, I have a cousin who um, was a CEO, I believe, at Rikers, you know, Corey. Um, and last night, we had dinner, and there was this guy there, and he was like, he said he told me a story, but this is a guy, he was like, it, which I found it to be so Interesting, because it's crazy, because I heard Hov say this, and he's like, um, this dude in prison or whatnot, I think he's in prison for life or whatnot, he he murdered somebody, um, and he was just like, yo, what are you doing in here, yo? He was like, you mad cool, like, how did you throw your life away like this or that? And I, this, this shit blew my mind, and he was like, why did you, you know, I guess, why did you commit murder? Why did you do that? And he says, uh, and it was like, I think it was a stranger, like, they got into an argument on the train, because dude kept staring at him, he was like, because... He saw me for, like, he saw me. Like, I'm like, what do you mean? He was like, yo, he said that. No, he actually said he saw me, and I'm probably messing it up, but he said he saw me for who I really was. And I thought that was so interesting because what he said, the instance was, like, he was somebody on the train and was staring at him, and they got into an argument, and he, whatever, and he ended up, you know, taking his life. And he was just like, 
he saw me for who he who I really was, and that's why I reacted in the way I was. I thought that, that shit bugged me out because I hope I don't know if you remember Hope was saying that Hope was like yo, and they Hope got all this backlash because it was like all oh, that, you know, because I think Hope related that to why um, well it was some other thing, but you know, but he was just like. You in the streets, somebody was like, oh, you and Hope was like, yo, you see me. Like, you see me for real at home. They're like, what are you looking at me for or whatnot? And I, and that, and the fact that he had, now he got to the point where he had enough emotional intelligence to be able to, like, um, communicate why he reacted and why he spazzed out and, and did what he did. And to me, that kind of, when you peel the layers back or whatnot, and you really see that he saw him for the, he, my cousin was saying, like, he saw him for this, this really what he was as his insecure vulnerable, hurting, painful person. You know what I mean? And like, you know, a lot of beasts are like, oh, what are you looking at? Boom, boom. And that's really coming from like, oh, you really see me for who I am. And that's what it came down to. And I'm like, wow. But now he's at a point where he can like, really, because a lot of the time I always said, I always said, I don't know if I ever told you this, I was like, when you're youth, like, I feel like they should teach kids two things. First of all, taxes and emotional intelligence. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of what, you know, men associate with being tough or being strong that is really about um, protecting a really fragile ego and dodging accountability and um, being reluctant to grow. You know what I think? Uh, as you get older, uh, you realize that you know emotional maturity is is the truest sign of growth. You know, right? that like if you that sort of confronting your your insecurities and and pushing yourself to to um, be sort of like healthy psychologically and to to grow these various traits like to be to be patient, to be a better listener, to be understanding, to be more generous, right? These this is a, a truer sign of growth, right? And uh and it helps improve your life and the lives of those around you, you know. So yeah, I think, you know, emotional intelligence is key and and it's uh, unfortunate that we don't pay a lot of attention to it. You know, I say we I mean as a society as a whole, you know, people celebrate a lot of things, they celebrate wealth and financial success, they celebrate, you know, when you're younger grades and things like that, but not like your maturity as such, your emotional disposition and things like that, you know. I think that's that's very true, you know. And I think there's a lot of hurt and a lot of, um, you know, depression, a lot of mental anguish that people are grappling with, you know. And I think that uh, as a society, it's important to have those resources available to people, you know. Like, yeah. you know, one of the things you see through incarceration is like how prisons have become spaces for like having people deal with their mental health problems also it's just and it's not the ideal space for that right like there are places better suited to help people grapple with what they're struggling with you know but um yeah i think that just having like uh like as a just as a as a as a society putting a higher uh more emphasis on the importance of health and wellness in the most holistic sense you know could help people avoid some of the things you know that end up uh, leading down the wrong path, I think. 100%. Yeah, man, we want to uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. And we appreciate you, brother, um, especially the work you're doing. Um, I mean, like, you're probably one of the few people I know that's actually doing this work and giving a voice to the forgotten and, and it's needed. And um, just, you know, who you are and what you represent. You know, we need you out here and we appreciate you. I appreciate y'all, man, because, you know, it's using your platform to, like, spark important conversations and you know behind the scenes you guys are doing the work you, you were talking about like just sort of as black people you know be organized you know um organizing our businesses organizing our platforms you know it's like we need different platforms that give us this access you absolutely know, and stuff so it's great it's great work you guys are doing Thank you, brother, for sure. Yeah, so yeah. let people know where they can find you, where they can uh, find the Kickstarter. So Kickstarter. I have a website, www.michaelralph.org. Uh, if you just Google fishing animated film, Michael Ralph, the Kickstarter will come up. I appreciate, you know, people support support the project. Um, and yeah, man, you know, uh, so that's that's about it, I guess. Yeah. There you have it. And uh, one question we ask everybody, what drives you? <laughs> <laughs> what keeps you going uh, what keeps me going is um, you know I actually feel like even if you do a little bit to try to make a difference in the lives of other people you can see the effects right away you know like it could be like a little cousin it could be you know you volunteer speak at a school 
and you can see how something you say resonates with somebody or someone will tell you like i appreciate you saying that i think that keeps me going just to know that like every bit of good you do has an impact you know like it may it makes a difference you know sometimes you don't know sometimes it could be like years later someone will be like you know what you know years ago you told me this uh, like even in this conversation you guys have brought up things you know conversations you've had in the past and stuff i think that's what keeps me going just to know I can make a difference in the lives of other people and it could be beneficial somehow, you know. I think that drives me. That's incredible. Y'all check out the link in the description for the Kickstarter. We gotta get this uh this motion graphic together. Absolutely <laughs> for, for, sure. for everybody. So like we say at this time. Stay driven. Stay driven. <laughs> Thanks.